But then in the interest of time, let's go ahead and start. So welcome to our fourth class on the simile of the Snake Sutta. And uh, as usual, we will begin with an opportunity for uh, you to bring up any questions or comments about your engagement with material so far. Uh, anything lingering or anything uh, on your mind? Yes, Helen. Remember to unmute, uh, unmute Helen. Yeah, Helen, you have to unmute. <laughs> yeah, forgot about that. Uh, I have a couple questions about verse 42. The first time was mentioned about patchwork. What is patchwork? Is that modification, amendment? Um, my second question is the very end. Heaven. Does Buddha believe in heaven? You know, oh, yeah. And is heaven is the last, is the highest liberation? Okay, that's a whole so, bunch of questions. Yeah, um, right? yeah. I'm going to address the second one first, because I think many people might be wondering about heaven. Um, so in the Buddhist cosmology, there are realms that are um, higher than the human realm that are called heavens, and there's a whole bunch of them. <laughs> and they have to do really with the state of consciousness, actually, of the people occupying them, the beings occupying them. They are not the highest liberation. So the, the Buddha's understanding was that beings can uh, go into these heavens, which are, you know, the, the devas you may hear, or the beings that occupy them. And they have to do with higher mind states, um, but uh, awakening or liberation is to uh, not be in that round of rebirth. So even people that are born into heaven can be reborn then anywhere else after that, depending on their karma. So it's, um, it's not the same as the heaven that we would have in our Western understanding. It's just a word that was conveniently used because it's, yeah. If anybody wants to add anything to that, that's fine. I would just add uh, on both those questions, Barbara, um, that the, the notes in Bhikkhu Bodhi's book can be really entertaining and uh, enlightening. And on that point, he, he notes that about heaven, he says, note that they are headed only for heaven, not for enlightenment. Right. So that, I think, just adds a, you know, to Kim's comment. And then yeah. this, this, this lovely note about uh, the, the uh, patchwork. Um, he says, uh, this is note, where did it go? Uh, 271. He says, this word, pilotika, is a torn and worn out rag stitched and knotted here and there. There is nothing in the Dhamma like this. Nothing that's torn out, worn out, stitched and knotted by way of hypocrisy or other deceptions. Yeah, so... It refers to the high quality and continuity and consistency of the Dharma. Yeah, well, maybe one more comment on heaven is that it's not a bad place. Is <laughs> that often beings that people who are not headed for awakening are encouraged to develop themselves in ways that will allow them to be reborn in heaven, and that has to do with having good karma and you know making offerings and cultivating love and you know the 
the good wholesome qualities allow for rebirth in heaven. Yeah. Okay, um, Kevin. Oh, Diana. I just want to say, because we bring so many ideas to the word heaven, I just want to be explicit. When you go to heaven, you're there for a certain amount of time, and then you leave. And you leave. It's not eternal. Yeah, not eternal heaven. You go to a heaven, and then maybe you're born as a snake that bites people who grabs it by the tail. Or something. I don't know. But you're it's it's you're there for a certain amount of time, and then you leave. <clears throat> okay, um, Kevin. Um, you know, I was struck by that those last uh, that last section as well, and um, I had the same question about. I raised my hand at first, and then I put it down, but I still have another question or comment. Um, one question is, why did Bhikkhu Bodhi use heaven? I mean, wouldn't he have better used something like heavenly realms? Because it has so much, you know, for English speakers and in a Christian society, it has a lot of other connotations that I don't think he meant. Right. Yeah. I don't have a clear answer, except possibly it was Nanamoli's word that um, he left in. Yeah. I don't know. Um the Majima in particular was at first translated by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. And Bhikkhu Bodhi was, was quite a young monk at the time, or younger at least. And some things were left in out of kind of out of deference. But I don't know that that's the case yeah. in that, yeah. for that word. So then the other question or comment I had was, what I found really inspiring as a householder reading this is that the order of the um, attainments that is presented in this last section. It starts with the very highest and ends with something that I can relate to. So it was nice that the, this very long sutta, because I just finally read it all the way through uh, yesterday, that it ends on this note of, yes, you can, even you can, that's how I read it anyway, um, can attain something uh, worthwhile. That's something for everyone, yeah. yeah. And it was nice that it was the ending. So I thought that, I don't know if that was intended or not. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we probably have time for Lisana also. Thank you. I'm trying to take my hand out. I'll figure that out later. Um, I was struck by uh, verse 47, where it ends with, uh, those who have sufficient faith in me, sufficient love for me. And I find that um, an appeal to authority, which seems counter to much of the teaching. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. This is an interesting point. Um, maybe we have several perspectives among the teachers. I'm not sure, but I will, I'll throw in one uh teaching that comes to mind as you say that there's one that people quote very often that says where ananda says half the holy life must be spiritual friendship and the buddha says oh no it's the whole of the holy life and so and we all think oh that's nice we have the sangha and that's you know that's where the real meaning is but the next line in that sutta says and I am the ultimate spiritual friend. He doesn't say it quite like that, but he says those who have faith in me um, as the, as their spiritual friend will advance on the path. So we have two different views being presented. One of um, uh, kind of, 
collaborative friendship and another where we understand that there are people farther ahead than us on the path in a sense. And there's a way in which we can uh, take refuge in that and have faith in that as um, not so much as an authority figure or as a, um, I don't know, but as a sense of, oh, I can see somebody who seems to have done these practices more fully than me. And I, that inspires me to go forward. So faith and love in that in, in advanced mm-hmm. practitioners, or in this case, in the Buddha. So it could even be a more spiritual uh, aim of the heart can really actually help advance our path quite a bit. This is the devotional aspect. That's how I would hear it. And maybe I'll just add just a little bit here is we can um, put this into context the beginning of the sutta was this person, Aritta, who even though he had heard all these teachings, he was dismissive and was um, still thinking that sensual pleasures weren't a problem. So here at the end, we kind of see the Buddha kind of reaffirming the importance of his teachings. So Maybe I'll add that um, in the context of this ancient culture is maybe, you know, there's a, a lot of people who are, uh, the culture is a devotional culture in some sense. Um, and so um, and this may also have played um, a little bit of a role in, in this statement. I would offer that the the confusion I think for me comes from the the interface between the, sort of the Christian tradition, which I am not a Christian, but having grown up in that dominant culture, of the the teacher as the um, the intercessor, the one who causes you to become, you know, saved in this case, in the case of Christianity. And so I wanted clarification, which you thankfully, which you've done, thank 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 you, um, between sort of handing over responsibility versus following as a guide versus following as an inspiration. So thank you. Thank you for the clarification. Just one little thing on Lisana's point. And given that tradition and those echoes, whether we're in those wisdom traditions or not, this is a place where using the word confidence instead of faith may help sort of open up a bit you know, the realm of uh, what feels um, supportive yeah, in, in that. Yeah. Thank you, David. That's, I, I agree with that, that clarification. Thank you. Or that alternative uh, translation. I see we have one more hand, but I wonder if it's possible to um, go on and, and hope that maybe, because all of these questions have been about actually the last part of the sutta, which we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. So I wonder if we could go on um, with uh, Ying's teaching, and um, maybe we'll be sure to get to Kevin later. How about that? Okay. okay. All right. I'm enjoying all those questions because they are related to this last part of the teaching. Um, so, uh, what I'll talk about, I just want to do a sound check and we'll make sure this is okay. The sound is okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the uh, part that um, I'll be um, talking about and all related to how we relate to the Buddhist teachings. Um, 
And I'm going to start this by reading this passage in section 21, the verse, uh, yeah, section 21. And I'm going to see if I could do a cut and paste of um, this into the chat box. Um, and so if you want to follow along reading this, um, here is, here are the verses. And I cut and pasted two different translations of it. Um, so I'm going to read it out loud here. The Tathagata teaching the Dharma for the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of a craving, for dispassion, for cessation, and for nibbana. And then I was struck by uh, the Bhante Sujato's translation. And the first, uh, they, they do have some differences. And in particular, the first line, it says, the Tathagata teaching Dharma for the uprooting of all grounds, fixations, obsessions, insistences, and underlying tendencies regarding views. So what's striking me is that the, there's a whole, first a whole chunk of words um, were all related to how we relate to views. You know, have a views of setting it as a ground or fixing, a fi uh, becoming uh, fixed with our views or obsessed with our views and, and existing our, on our views and our certain kind of underlying tendency that we have with our views. So I'm going to kind of uh, summarize the first whole thing uh, with a simple uh, phrase of, and the Buddha teaches the Dharma for uprooting all fixed views. I mean, it's not perfect, but I'm just going to shorten this. And it's interesting to see that this uprooting or eliminating of all fixed views are set in parallel to all these other phrases or terms. And the stilling of all formations, or the letting go of all attachments, destruction of a craving in these different translations, all the way to Nibbana, as if they're kind of a synonyms to each other in some sense. And so the felt sense for me was that there is um, an, a quite a profound importance uh, in this teaching around uprooting all these fixed views. And why is that? Um, I think in the last class, and I did a listen to the recording, I was delighted, um, even though I missed it, that um, David also talked about um, that the very existence of this kind of a fixed views depends on craving. If we reflect for ourselves, without some form of a holding on or grasping, Views are just going to be fleeting thoughts, kind of breeze, breeze of um, mental formations, activities in our mind. They don't land anywhere. There's no ground for them. And so it's only when there is craving, two views that are happening, the thoughts can harden 
settle into fixed views, lasting views. And so this part of the teaching, talking about、um, uprooting all these fixations on views, and yet it's very interesting that this kind of teachings are very easily misunderstood and misrepresented. No matter what translation we're reading, or even at the time of the Buddha, when the Buddha taught this in person, and the teachings can be misunderstood and misrepresented. And so, if you look at the section thirty-seven to thirty-nine,、um, we can see that it's very easy that、uh, that、um, we relate to this kind of teachings from a very dualistic perspective. Either there is a self, or there is no self, or is if、uh, whether there either there is a thing or there is no thing. So, when the Buddha spoke about Uprooting or eliminating of all fixed views in section thirty-seven to thirty-nine, some people began to mistaken that these teachings are the teachings of annihilation and of destructing all things, getting rid of all things. As you can see, this is a phenomenon that's happening, you know, in the ancient times, and it's happening here too. <laughs> so we can hold these teachings by the wrong ends, depending on where it came from. If it came from the dualistic perspective, we can always interpreting these teachings from the sense of self or the other extreme that nothing exists. And the Buddha corrected this kind of、uh, misperceptions or、um, misrepresentations in section thirty-nine, and the David also highlighted this. And the Buddha said, both formerly and now, what I teach is suffering and the cessation of the suffering. So this whole business about fixed views, uprooting of all these fixed views, are related to dukkha. And ending of dukkha. It is about that that the Buddha is talking about, teaching about uprooting of all fixed views. And this is not to say that we should never have a views, beliefs, or、um, opinions. But rather, it invites an alternative way of relating to our views. That may be more conducive to more and more freedom, rather than tying us up in knots. And so, in particular, in this sutta, the Buddha talked about how easy、um, one of the views that is very easy for us to get stuck in very deeply, and that is the sense of self through our relationship of our grasping、uh, with the five aggregates. And so the Buddha taught uh, uh, some alternatives、uh, how we relate to this. And so in the Sutta,、uh, in section twenty-seven, and the Buddha said,、uh, we should see forms, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, and they should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. 
And so here there are maybe a, a few uh, keywords that I'm gonna highlight here. That is, this humanly processes activities are to be seen as they are. What does that mean? So usually uh, we relate it to our bodies as my body. Now this is me. But the Buddha said, well, can you really see them, the body as the body? The, form, the forms as the forms, the perceptions as the perceptions. It's kind of tricky uh, to really do this because our, our habit mind um, usually would come from some flavors of uh, self, self being when we relate to all this men, uh, um, bodily, humanly processes. But as we hear this kind of teaching, maybe uh, we'll begin to open ourselves up to some new ways of relating to them. And obviously, this is a gradual training. It doesn't happen overnight. But through the practice, maybe we can begin to really experience the body in the body. And uh, this initial um, understanding in our intellect um, capacity may help kind of um, guide us into feeling and sensing these experiences. And so there is um, a basis for us to really learn about these teachings and maybe commit ourselves to work with this kind of teachings. And, and I want to circle back to um, some of the similes that we used uh, early on in the Sutta. And to point out that there is a basis for skillful holding of our teachings. I like the teachings like this because um, we all need this. You know, before we uh, uprooting all fixed views, we can only do this a little by little. Um, we don't want to simply throw out everything. We need the raft to carry, carry us over to the safe side of the shore. And if we prematurely throw our raft away in the midstream, <laughs> it can be pretty deadly. <laughs> so, so there is a skillful way of working with all these teachings. For me, I was reflecting on this um, there's a specific instruction in Satipatthana around, it, uh, around the right mindfulness in the Noble Eightfold Path, and that mindfulness of the body in the body. This is related to this teaching of seeing the forms as they are. It's been unfolding for over 20 years now, and it's still unfolding um, even to this date. And initially, I was kind of trying to understand this in a, a more intellectual way and finding different explanations of it. Of it. Um, and then over time, I began to practice this. And uh, through the practice, and this teaching uh, began to come alive in me. And, and so this, there is an embodied expression of being mindful of the body in the body itself. 
And so it really opened me up to listen to the wisdom of the body deeply. Sometimes maybe some insights and wisdom would bubble up from a teaching like this. And other times maybe a deep appreciation for this teaching. So for me, often I found myself bowing down to this simple teaching, just this one line itself. And so um, how can we bring these teachings uh, kind of alive in us? Maybe as we listen to these teachings, can we keep our heart and mind open? Maybe can we engage with this kind of teachings with our whole being, in our body, our, our heart, and, and our intellectual capacity with a lot of careful attention, reverence, curiosity, and maybe a sense of awe. In this way, the teachings can really touch deep, uh, deeply many layers of us. So end by saying that may we all find our own ways of living the Dharma. So thank you.